now I want you to take your Bible and open up to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And I'm going to read um, verse uh, 16, starting in verse 16, all the way down to verse 29. John chapter 6, verse 16. Now when the evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat... And they started across the sea to Capernaum. And it had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. And the sea began to be stirred up because of a strong wind was blowing. When therefore they had rowed about three or four miles, they beheld Jesus walking in the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. They were willing, therefore, to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was on, at the land to which they were going. The next day, the multitude that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered uh, it, uh, not entered with the disciples into the boat, but his disciples had gone uh, away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near the place where they had ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the multitude therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats, and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you, for on him the Father uh, I'm, I'm going to back that up. Which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. They said therefore to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for the opportunity to look into your word now. We pray your guidance upon us. And, and again, we pray that your Holy Spirit would go before us and work through your word in our hearts and we might see what you have for us here and that our lives might be challenged, um, examined, transformed, even changed by our time studying your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, obviously we're back here in the sixth chapter of the book of John. It's a wonderful uh, study. We just uh, finished the uh, previous text where Jesus had performed the miracle, which is proper popularly known as uh, the story of the feeding of the 5,000. As we saw last time, I explained to you that Christ fed perhaps somewhere between fifteen to maybe even up to 25,000 people if you counted all the women and, and children that gathered there that day. And he created so much food in abundance that everybody ate to their full and there was more left over, right? Uh, Twelve baskets left over. Uh, Christ created a, a plethora, a tremendous amount of food instantaneously. He cared for the multitudes. He created food for them. He healed their sick. He healed their blind, their lame, those who had various kinds of diseases. And he did all of this because he felt compassion for them. He was stirred by a strong inward emotion of mercy, grace, love, a tender feeling towards them. He felt the pain of their anguish, their suffering, and he wanted to meet their needs. And healing countless numbers of people as he did all throughout the day and then feeding the multitude later in the afternoon... And again, it was a miracle that I told you was witnessed by thousands upon thousands of people, somewhere between five to 25,000 people, perhaps. 
And again, it's the most massive miracle that Christ ever performed on a grand scale, the most massive numbers of eyewitnesses uh, to his uh, miraculous work. And for two years, Christ had been going through the region demonstrating that love, demonstrating that compassion that he has for men. Again, healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons, proclaiming the fact that the kingdom of God uh, was at hand. And, and at the same time he is doing that, there's a, 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 he's facing increasing persecution, op- opposition from both the political and religious leaders of the day. However, amongst the masses at this time, Christ's popularity is probably uh, at its height. He's gaining popularity. Again, he's fed the massive crowd of people from his own hands. He's done these miraculous works. He's reaching uh, into their lives, helping them. So uh, their, uh, their fervor for him is reaching a pitch, a height pitch, right? Everyone knows about him. Everybody knows all the things that he's doing. And so uh, the crowd loves him. In fact, verse 15 says the crowd wants to take him, kidnap him, and make him their king. Now, you'd have to imagine, the text doesn't tell us this, but you'd have to imagine the disciples probably, when they heard that, were thrilled. They were delighted that such an event was possibly uh, imminent. Right? Perhaps their, their hopes are being encouraged, renewed even, that Jesus would be that victorious king, and that would be the time where he would come and set up his kingdom on the earth. But the truth is, Jesus is not interested in a political kingdom. Jesus didn't come to uh, start a political uh, rebellion. He didn't come to become a, a leader of a political coup. He came to die. That's why he came. Jesus has a different agenda than the world's agenda, most certainly. De- Jesus has a different agenda than the world's agenda for him. Right? He has a spiritual agenda. He's seeking the salvation of those who are lost and those who are placed their faith in him. Because his kingdom is not a temporal kingdom. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom, a spiritual kingdom. Now, the truth is, Jesus Christ will reign one day on this earth, literally, physically. He'll reign on this earth for a thousand years, it says in the book of the Revelation. And it is true that one day he will have that literal, physical, earthly kingdom, and he will fulfill all the promises made to Israel, to to Abraham, to David. He'll fulfill all of the Old Testament covenants. But the crown does not come until after the cross. Right? The crown doesn't come till after the cross. Christ came into the world the first time as the suffering servant to die, as a willing substitute to die, to bear the sins of all those who had placed their faith in him. He will return a second time, the scripture says, as the conquering king. He will come and he will judge the rebellious, the wicked, those who refused his offer of mercy and grace and forgiveness of sins. They will face his justice. But again, the cross comes before the crown. So again, Christ didn't come to set up an earthly political kingdom. Christ didn't come to set up uh, an eternal welfare state. And the crowds don't understand that. The crowds are only interested in the things that they care about. They're only interested in the things that are beneficial for them, temporal things, physical things. They are ready to receive of his compassion. They're ready to receive of his power, uh, his healing, his ability to create food for them. But the vast majority of the crowd is not ready or willing to worship him. They will not offer him worship. There's no repentance. They're spiritually blind to the reality of who he is. They do not see him as the Savior, their Savior, the only Savior, their only hope of reconciliation, so they will not face eternal punishment before the Holy God. So again, he's at the pinnacle of his popularity. The crowd has acclaimed him to be the prophet, the one common uh, promised out of Deuteronomy uh, 18 through uh, Moses. And again, many want to come and capture him and make him their king. 
and likely present him as such at the coming Passover festival. But instead of following the crowd, listen, he's going to send the crowd away. He's also going to send around, most certainly, his disillusioned and disappointed disciples. He orders them into a boat and sends them across the Sea of Galilee. Now, that's just a very quick review to get us where we are in our text today up to verse 16. But as we move forward, what we have to understand here is we need to see the whole before we can understand the parts. I read intentionally verse 16 through 29 because not does it because it's a hole that we have to get our hands around. It obviously contains that familiar story of Jesus walking on the water, but that's not the issue here. And while it's true that Jesus' disciples are caught in the boat during a terrific storm that is threatening their life, that's also not the point here. When life gets difficult in the storms of life, Christ is there with us. That may be true, but that's not the point of the story here. Sadly, a lot of the commentators, maybe most of the commentators, get the whole thing wrong. They, they spend a great deal of time doing what I would call spiritualizing the text concerning this portion of Scripture to the extent that I think a lot of them, maybe even many of them, miss the point of the text, which is pretty hard to do, which is something you probably don't want to do if you're trying to write a commentary is you don't want to miss the whole point of the text, right? The issue here, in the verses that I read and following, the issue here is unmistakably in this portion of scripture the issue of true and false followers of christ true and false followers of christ that's the issue so in these verses from 16 to 29 there are two passages that really set the stage for what comes next and that what comes next in the story is jesus bringing the teaching that he is in fact the bread of life that sermon on the bread of life so at the same time that sermon's coming but at the same time this passage before us gives the stark contrast between true and false followers of Christ. So again, the first part uh, is, again, the text where Jesus is walking on water, the twelve that are caught in the storm in the Sea of Galilee, and their response to him, their response towards Christ. The second half of the story has to do with the crowd whom he's just uh, previously fed, and they're seeking him again the next day, but they're seeking him for a free meal. Right? They are false disciples, false followers. And you'll see that in the text when we get to it by the way they respond to him. Both groups are witnesses of supernatural events. And their reaction to that, their response to the supernatural event or the sign, are entirely different. That's the issue in this portion of the text. True and false followers of Christ. So again, the, the portion that we're starting to look into sets the stage for that great discourse that important sermon that christ says he is the bread of life it starts in verse 22 of john 6 it goes all the way down to verse 59 and amongst other things it says these things christ says these things verse 35 christ says i am the bread of life he who comes to me shall not hunger and he who believes in me shall never hurt, never thirst verse 38 for i have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me verse 48 again i am the bread of life Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Verse 53, truly, truly, I say to you that unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood and abides in me and I in him. And as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who eats me has uh, also shall live because of me. 
He who eats, verse 58, he who eats this bread shall never, uh, shall uh, live forever. So the crowd again has gathered. They're following him because they want breakfast. Simple. They want breakfast. They, he fed them dinner last night. Now they're hoping that perhaps again, if they follow him, he might give them breakfast. But instead of giving them breakfast, he gives them a sermon. And he gives them a sermon with something very difficult and some very hard things that he says in that sermon. And in essence, what Christ tells them is they can't follow him just for physical food. They're going to have to come to him for salvation. They're going to have to eat his flesh, drink his blood. They're going to have to take him in completely because that's the analogy. What happens when you eat something, drink something, right? You take it into your body. He's not talking about cannibalism. He's talking about you take it in, right? Don't you take it into your body and it becomes part of you. That's what he's saying. You can't just take little bits and pieces of me. You've got to take me in total. You've got to take me in. You've got to assimilate me. I've got to become part of you. You've got to become part of me, right? And I've got to become your life. You eat, you drink to sustain your life. You're going to have to take me in to sustain your life on a spiritual level. And he says, you're going to have to come to me on my terms. My terms, not your terms, my terms. And you're going to have to come and acknowledge me as the master, as the Lord, as the Savior. Now look what the result of that hard teaching was down in verse 66. It says, as a result of this, many of the disciples or many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Many of that massive crowd, and these are the little, little D disciples, right? They were the ones who were there just to get food from Christ, just for Christ to give them whatever he could give them on a physical level. When he demanded from them that they would follow him on his terms, the vast majority of people walked away. They weren't interested because they were shallow. They were uncommitted to him. And again, they were only those who were concerned about physical things, not spiritual things, earthly things, not spiritual. Therefore, they abandoned him. Most of that massive amount of crowd that were following him withdrew and would not walk with him again. And it says, as the result of this, that meaning his demands, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. I'll fast forward. It's not in my notes, but you got 20, 15, we'll just say 5,000, okay? If you get crazy when I say maybe 25,000 people. How many people were in the upper room at the end of his ministry? 120, in case you forgot. That tells you. Not a whole lot of people follow. There's a whole lot of people following for the circus. A whole lot of people following for the miracles. A whole lot of people following Jesus for what they can get out of him on a personal level, but not for the truth. Not for the reality of who he is. The, the way is broad. The gate is narrow. That leads to eternal life. There's a whole lot of people today that are following the popular Jesus of the quote-unquote Christian culture that don't understand the demands that the biblical Jesus makes of them. Therefore, there are many on the broad road to destruction and not on the narrow way that leads to eternal life. Not in my notes, but it's a freebie. I won't charge you any extra for it. All right? So most of them have walked away. And most of them will continue to walk away. Now I'm going to pause for a moment. Again, as the result of, the, of this, many of his disciples withdrew. We're not walking with him anymore. I'm going to stop and make a comment on that word uh, disciples. Mathetes is the word. Because again, there's a certain segment of popular Christianity today that teaches that a disciple is a special advanced class of a Christian who is actively pursuing sanctification as opposed to the normal everyday quote-unquote believer who is just merely quote, open quote, accepted or believed in Jesus, close quote. Therefore, according to them, has been justified but not yet sanctified. And again, that's not biblically true. The Bible makes it clear that all true believers are disciples of Christ. All true believers follow Christ 
and are obedient to his command. You say, well, how do you know that? Again, I read the Bible. You know, Hebrews 5.9. Hebrews 5.9, having been made perfect, he, Christ, became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. If you've just merely, quote-unquote, accepted Jesus and are not obeying him, this sermon is for you. You need to see where you're at. You need to call into question the reality of your commitment to Christ because Christ is the source of salvation to those who obey him, and those who obey him are true followers of Christ. They go together. All true biblical believers are disciples of Christ. They are justified, yes, and they are in the process of sanctification. I said it last Sunday night. Justification is instantaneously, and, and sanctification is, at least in the sense of it starts at the moment of salvation. It is a process ongoing, ongoing, but it starts at the same time justification, sanctification happens, right? The sanctification is a process, I get that. It is a process of us becoming separated more and more from sin and more and more looking every day uh, like the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, we talked about that last evening in our exposition of Romans 6. I'm going to pause and make a comment about that. If you're not here on Sunday night, you're missing out. You're missing out in general, but you're especially missing out because of the text in Romans 6. You are missing out, and I highly encourage you that you need to be here to listen to that so that you can have a proper understanding of truth because Romans chapter 6 is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. And Romans chapter 6 is a freeing reality of who we are in Christ. And when you understand who you are in Christ as a new creation in Christ, what God has done for you in Christ... It will be free, bring freedom to your heart. We are not who we used to be. If you're in Christ, you're a new creature. All things have become new. And I said it over and over again. I'm not going to preach Romans 6 here in the morning, but I said it over and over again when I'm preaching the last couple of weeks in Romans 6. You need to leave the old man who you were dead in Adam in the grave and stop bringing him up. Well, I keep struggling with this, and my old man keeps knowing. You're new in Christ. Romans 6 is the Christian's emancipation proclamation. It is freedom because of what God has done for us in Christ. And the first thing you've got to understand to walk in that freedom is you've got to understand the truth. Romans 6 is phenomenal. We'll be back there tonight, right? What freedom Christ has brought from for you or bought for you uh, because of his, uh, his great uh, victory over sin, death, and the grave, right? So, but again, this idea, back to the disciples, this idea that there are two levels of Christians— you know, two levels of uh, Christianity. You've got your ordinary, everyday, walk-of-the-mill, quote-unquote, believer. And then you've got the more advanced stage of a guy called a, quote-unquote, disciple. That's completely unbiblical. It's unbiblical. I'll give you two categories. I'm pretty simple. You either got the true or the false. That's it. The true or the false. That's it. And the sad reality, not everybody who calls himself a follower of Christ really is one. Because there are false followers of Christ, false disciples of Christ. False disciples of Christ come to seek what they can from him for their own personal gain. And when they do not get what they want from him, when their selfish desires are not met, they forsake him altogether. Right? Because the false followers of Christ have not come to Christ and bowed before him for who he is as Savior and Lord. True followers of Christ, on the other hand, they've counted the cost. They love the Lord Jesus Christ above all else, even their own family, even their own life. And they're willing to submit themselves to him and follow the cost no matter what. They're willing to submit to Christ's lordship in everything, persecution or even execution. 
Because for the true follower of Christ, there's no price too high to pay for one's eternal life given to them as a gift of God's grace through his tremendous Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, there have been many godly saints throughout history who have suffered terribly for following Christ. In fact, that's the promise of the Scripture. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. At some point, not today, but a sermon for the future, already in my mind, I'm thinking about it, is we, my dear friends, need to start in our mind getting ready for persecution. Not to be surprised when it comes. All you've got to do is put your head up. It's coming all around us. It's big time to the north of us in Canada. Persecution is coming. And for you to face persecution, just like the the brothers in the book of Daniel did, the young men, they set their heart in advance that they would not defile themselves. So when that situation came where there was an opportunity or where they could make a choice, they'd already made the choice. It wasn't difficult for them. They already determined in advance they were going to follow the Lord, honor him, worship him, and not bow to whatever idol the culture was sitting before him or the king was sitting before them. And I'm telling you right now, we need to steal our hearts, get them a little tougher than they are. Persecution is not when somebody says some bad word against you, right? We need to steal our hearts and prepare So when the onslaught comes, we can give a faithful testimony to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We want to stand in line with the faithful people who have come before us and allowed us the freedom that we have in this day to meet together because it's come at at the cost of many men and women's blood for us even to be here, to have a Bible in our hands that we can understand in our language and even have the privilege of meeting together, right? It's not free. It's cost, right? From God through Christ is free. But men, it's cost them to take a stand for Christ. Now again, look down at verse 66. As a result of this, right, Christ's statement, many of the disciples withdrew. They were not walking with him anymore. Verse 67, therefore he said to the twelve, right? There's a distinction between the masses and the twelve. Do you not, uh, you do not want to go away also, do you? Verse 68, Simon Peter answered, Him said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's a great statement, right? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So again, Christ's true disciples won't leave him. No matter what comes. No matter what comes the direction. Because they've come to understand who he is. He is the Holy One of God. He is the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and what? No one comes to the Father but through me. They've come to understand that he is mankind's only hope of reconciliation and forgiveness of their sin. Reconciliation to God and forgiveness of the sin. So this portion of Scripture before us is a, it starts the transition into this section, and it's a very important, very vital portion of Scripture that we have to come to a proper understanding of, and again, not miss the point of it. Because the Bible repeatedly points out the fact there are many people who from a distance look like they're following Christ, but upon upon closer inspection, they'll turn out to be something other than who they claim to be. The New Testament is full of examples and warnings concerning false followers of Christ. In fact, one writer puts it like this. He says the New Testament describes them as tares amongst the wheat, bad fish that are thrown away, goats condemned to eternal punishment, 
Those left standing outside when the head of the house shuts the door. Foolish virgins shut out of the wedding feast. Useless slaves who bury their master's talent in the ground. They are apostates who eventually leave the fellowship of believers. Manifest uh, stations of evil, unbelieving hearts by abandoning the living God. They continue to sin willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth and fall away from the true to the to, from truth to everlasting destruction. Here it is, Matthew seven, verse thirteen and fourteen. Although they may even think that they are on their way to heaven, they are actually on the broad path leading to hell. Again, there's many people who are, think that they're going, many people talking about heaven, but the reality is there's not many people who find eternal life. Because most people will not come to Christ on his terms. And again, that is the only way you can come to him. Right? So you've got to get that one down. That's like 101. You can only come to Christ the way he says to come to him. So again, the issue in this text, unmistakably, is the issue of true and false followers of Christ. We've got to understand the whole before we can start picking the parts. You know, the, before you can look at the parts. But we're going to start picking the part, right? Looking at the parts. So let's look at the first story. Verse 16. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into the boat, they started across the sea to Capernaum, and it had already become dark, and Jesus had not come to them. When evening had come, his disciples went down to the sea. Now again, Christ has just made an overabundance of food for the multitude, and he has thwarted the crowd's uh, attempt to come and make him king by force. And again, I think at this exciting time, there had to be a certain amount of excitement amongst the disciples that perhaps now their master is going to get the recognition that's due him. They're excited about the crowd's response to Christ. I mean, even Christ himself had taught the disciples back in Matthew 6 that they were to pray for God's kingdom to come. And boy, this sure looks like if it's going to come, this is a good opportunity to have that prayer answered, right? But instead of playing on that or capitalizing on the mood of the crowd and their desire to enthrone him, not only does Jesus send the crowds away, but he sends his disciples away. In Matthew's version of the story, Matthew 14, uh, 22, it says, and immediately he made the disciples get into his boat, or into the boat. He made the disciples get into the boat to go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. Immediately he made the disciples get in the boat. In the Greek, that verb there is a very strong verb. It means to necessitate, to compel, to drive, constrain by force or, or by threat. Evidently, they didn't want to go. And the use of that strong verb suggests maybe they even argued with him, but he compelled and commanded them. He commanded the disciples, his disciples, the twelve, to depart from him. And then he commanded the unruly crowd, likewise, who wanted to make him king, for them also to depart. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and he went uh, to go ahead of him to the other side and he sent, uh, uh, he sent the multitudes away also. And that's a very important part in the story because what that tells us, and again, we don't want to overlook the obvious, but it ha- the obvious has to be brought out. This is an exercise of Christ's authority. An exercise of Christ's authority. His sovereign authority. The fact that he's sovereignly in control over all events and all things. Christ not only controls the disciples, the twelve, but he commands the mob the thousands upon people who want to make him king. He commands them to depart and they leave because authority is invested with Christ. Authority is one of the things that manifested in Christ's ministry from the very beginning. It was recognized by the multitudes in his teaching, Matthew 7, 29. He was teaching them as one having authority, not as their scribes. 
right? His authority was recognizable. And Christ, all through his ministry, demonstrates his authority over and over again. He, just, he demonstrates his authority over the natural and over the supernatural, all throughout his ministry. He, he demonstrates his authority over the physical realm when he heals people. The power to heal, the power to, to heal diseases, to heal sickness, to heal the leper, to heal the centurion slave, the, the blind, the lame. I mean, he even raises the dead. He exercises power and authority. He healed everyone who was brought to him. He healed them freely. He even, listen, he healed those who were afflicted with demons, which demonstrates his power not only over the physical, but his power over the supernatural, over the spiritual realm. In Matthew 8, there's another story where the disciples are caught in a storm. He demonstrates his authority and power over nature, over the earth. Again, the disciples are fearful of their life, thinking they're going to drown. And it says in Matthew 8, 26, he rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And in that text, it means it became instantaneously calm. He said, be still, and it was still. Went from a raging storm to a sea glass. Why? Because all power belongs to him. You've got to understand this one whom you're following. He is the creator God. Paul says of him in Colossians 1 and 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominion, rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. He is the creator God in absolute control of absolutely everything and everyone. He's in control of everything and everyone. He's in control of heaven. He's in control of hell. He's in control of Satan. He's in control of the demons. He's in control of his disciples, the twelve. He's in control of the crowd. He's in control of all those who are against him. He controls absolutely everything and everyone. He is in absolute control of every situation. There's not one single molecule in this entire universe that is running around in some kind of random fashion. Christ has them all under control. If there was even one random molecule in this entire universe out of control, radical, off doing its own thing, then Christ would not be the all-sovereign God who he is. He would be a limited ruler because there's one little molecule somewhere out in the universe that he's not in charge of. He he might be powerful, but not all-powerful. And the God of the Bible, the Christ of the Bible, is the all-powerful, all-sovereign ruler. He has everything under control. He's in control of all things. He's in control of all events, all events, all people, all situations, circumstances, because, again, Jesus Christ is gone. And because he's the absolute sovereign in control of the universe, there is nothing outside of his control, that means that every event that happens in your life, every event that happens in my life, he is in perfect control over and he allows what he allows to come into our life for his purposes. And he allows what he allows into our lives and the circumstances of our lives that are uh, perfectly consistent with his character. Now, what did I just say about his character? What did I say? Didn't I say that he's compassionate, gracious? He's always d- displaying that kind of mercy to people. So whatever comes into your life, in my life, that we may not like, we may not understand, but the first thing we better understand is who God is who has sent it, because it's not accidental. You get cancer. Nobody wants cancer. I tell you what, you better get very fast from that spot that says, that is bad luck that I have cancer, and you better get as fast as you can to the position of, God sent it to me. That's a big gap, but you better get there as fast as you can because you can't deal with it's an accident. It's a fate, chance, bad luck. There's no such thing as chance, accident, fate, bad luck. There is a God in the universe who happens to be in control of everything. And again, whatever difficulty, cancer or a car accident or whatever, you and I may not understand, but it is sent into our hand by the good God who has loved us eternally into time. 
promised to love us eternally in the future. So we've got to start thinking right. We've got to start thinking biblically. He's sovereign, control of the universe. Nothing happens in our life that is not in his perfect control and power. Therefore, again, there's not a single issue, not a single moment when our lives are not in his hands, safe and secure. Again, nothing in our life is left to chance. Everything is ordained by God, ordained by Christ for our good and for his glory. Well, I hear somebody out there going, well, yeah, what about the evil things that happen in this world, in my life? Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of evil. I'll give you that. I don't know. Let me stop and think for a second. Can I think of God? Is God powerful enough to take the most wicked thing that ever happened in the entire universe, that being the absolute the, the murder of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? And is God in heaven strong enough, powerful enough to turn the greatest evil that any man could ever do and turn it into the greatest good? I think so, right? So yeah, I got it. We live in a fallen world, fallen people, wicked people all around us, okay? God does not ordain wickedness and the evil, but God does ordain our lives and is in control. My friend, from bad luck to uh, uh, God's providence is a tremendous amount of mercy in that distance. A tremendous amount of mercy. And those trials always bring us closer to God and closer to Christ. He's in absolute sovereign control. In fact, Matthew 28, verse 18, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Do you know what all authority means in the Greek? It means all authority. There you go. You guys are Greek exegetes. It means all authority, all power. All authority, all power belongs to Christ in heaven and on earth. Christ has all of the power. And again, the Bible repeatedly says that God, power belongs to God. Isaiah 62, 11. <laughs> Isaiah 62, 11 says that power belongs to God. It says the same thing in Chronicles, uh, 1 Chronicles 29, 11, 12, Isaiah 43, uh, uh, 13. Uh, I won't read those, but how about Isaiah 46, 9? Isaiah 46, 9. You should write this in your notes somewhere. Remember the former things long past. For I am God, there is no other. I am God, there's no one like me. Here it is, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. That is power, right? Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things haven't even happened yet, saying my purpose is going to be established. That is hope. Psalm 139 is a psalm of hope. It's not just you, 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 and you should be aware of the fact that he sees everything you do, and you should be holy because of that, but it's also a psalm of hope that there's nowhere that you can flee from his presence. He's always there to be with you. That's tremendous encouragement. Power belongs to God. Christ has all power, therefore, in the equation, Christ is God. Right? He is the all-powerful one. He's the one who's ab- without, uh, with uh, absolute authority, absolute control of the universe. Perfect control, again, of every event that happens in our lives. Power belongs to him. And because power belongs to him, listen, he's the only one that can overturn the curse of sin. Because power, all power belongs to Christ, he's the only one that can overturn the curse of sin on the earth. He's the only one who can do anything about sin. He's the only one that can eliminate all of the sorrows and the tears and the pain and the sickness caused by sin. He's the all-powerful one. He's the only one who can come and crush sin and reverse its curse on this earth. That's power. Power to create, power to redeem, power to eliminate sin, power to restore the earth, power to conquer sin. That's power. And again, that's the authority and the power of Christ. Again, in Matthew's version of it, Matthew 14, 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat, go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the multitude away. So he commands the disciples, 
to get in the boat. Cast off the, the crowd, commands the disciples to get in the boat to go to the other side of the lake. Why did he do that? Well, I think perhaps in part because he knew their hearts. He knew that uh, the crowd is crazy and they want the best for him. And he didn't want them, I think, to get swept away in the superficial enthusiasm of the crowd. Uh, that uh, wanted Christ again the Christ the, the crowd only wants Christ for what Christ can do for them because the, cry, the crowd's not going to bow to Christ's lordship so it's uh, not time he sends them away to protect them it's not time for him to be made king again the cross has to come before the crown Christ exercises authority sends the uh, disciples away they obey him uh, even though they may not fully understand isn't that the way it is in our life right we may not fully understand what's going on but if we trust the person of god trust his character trust christ then we can be ensured that whatever is coming next is okay because god has ordained it so they get in there they get in the boat again they don't fully understand in part because christ has more to teach them uh, he, he wants them to come to a deeper understanding of the truth of who he is what he's like because there's a big test that awaits these fellows uh, in the night uh, they don't know they don't know it's coming, but Christ does. Isn't that a great mercy that we don't know what's coming? It's a great mercy, trust me. You don't want the crystal ball looking into the future, right? It would just mess your life up. Just trust Christ. He knows what's coming next. He, they don't know, but Christ does, that, that, uh, because Christ is going to send them away right into the middle of a storm. And, and it's a literal storm that's going to test them. It's going to test their response to him. And it's going to test whether or not they'll entrust themselves to him completely. So again, verse 16, John 6. Now, when the evening had come, this uh, evening here is what would be referred to as the second evening from sunset to darkness. So this is about 6 to 9 p.m. The disciples went down to the sea after getting into the boat. They started across the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Right? Uh, Verse uh, 17, they started across the sea. So again, the disciples, they put in the boat, they go from where they are, from Bethsaida, they're going to sail up uh, northwest towards Capernaum. Uh, It's a very short trip uh, uh, around the corner, that's what they're going, the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. It's about a four-mile journey, right? They didn't want to go, but they go because they've been commanded. So in obedience to Christ, whose uh, authority they couldn't resist, they, they go. And Christ had not come to them, but they set sail anyway. After getting into a boat, they started across the sea to Capernaum, and again, it says it had already become dark. I'm going to stop there. I seem to be in a stopping mood today. Uh, they had, it had already become dark. Well, let me tell you uh, what that does not mean. It had already become dark is not, and I quote, an emblem of the position of the Church of Christ between the first and second advent. The church is in the darkness of the sea of trouble, separated from its head, alone in the boat. So just in case you were wondering, that's not what that means. There's no reason to spiritualize the text. When it says in the text, it had already become dark, do you know what I know what it means? You probably already guessed. It means it had already become dark. The sun had set. Okay, that's it. There's no reason to spiritualize or over-spiritualize text. That's a great error. The plain, simple, straightforward reading of the text is more likely the exact meaning of the text unless there's some compelling, and I mean compelling, reason to believe otherwise. They started across the Sea of Capernaum. It had already become dark. Jesus had not yet come to them. So where's Jesus? Well, if you look back in verse 15, right? Jesus, perceiving they were going to make him a king or come take him by force and make him king, he withdrew to the mountain by himself alone. Where's Jesus? He's praying. He's praying up in the mountain, something he did very often throughout his entire ministry. He finds a lonely place where he can be with his heavenly father. Verse 18 says, And the sea began to be stirred 
up because of a strong wind that was blowing. Now, at least four of the 12 guys in this boat, and as I've read historically, these boats are about 27 foot long. So you've got 12 guys in a 27-foot boat, long boat. There's probably not a lot of social distancing going on there, right? Yeah. At least four of these guys were experienced fishermen. They are familiar with that boat. They're familiar with the sea, the management of boats, and they're familiar with the danger of the lake. Now, again, I told you the strong wind, this lake, the Sea of Galilee, was notorious for sudden violent storms. One writer says this, Remember the lake lies about 600 feet lower than the ocean, that surrounding hills rise about 2,000 feet above the sea level, dropping sharply 3,000 feet from the top of the hill to the surface of the lake, which creates ideal conditions for sudden violent storms. Cool air rushes down the slopes and strikes the surface of the lake with great force, churning the water into whitecaps and creating dangerous conditions for small boats. Okay, a 3,000-foot drop, whew! Okay, uh, where I grew up, I won't bore you with the whole details, but where I grew up in Northern California, it was common for the temperatures in the summers to be well into the hundreds, into the hundred tens, the teens, sometimes even the hundred and twenty. Why? Because we were at the north end of the Sacramento Valley, and there was foothills, and then another set of hills, and another set of hills, and then some big mountains, and the and the and the wind always blew from the north. And what that wind did is when it blew from the north, it just compressed the air down to the top of the valley. And so if you've ever been to the Sacramento Valley, it's not only Redding, but Sacramento, the whole thing, the northern Sacramento Valley becomes very hot in the summer because the wind compresses as it comes down and it increases friction in the heat, right? Same kind of idea. You've got a 3,000-foot drop, 2,000 mountains, 1,000 foot under the sea level. You've got these winds coming and they're compressing all this water on the on the surface of the lake. There's a famous historian, his name's Thompson, and he wrote, wrote a book called Land in the Book, and he says, Small as the lake is, and placid in general, as a molten mirror, I have repeatedly seen it quiver, leap, and boil like a cauldron when di- driven by fierce winds. So this lake has the ability to go from flat to like a boiling cauldron almost instantaneously. It had already become <clears throat> dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Verse 18, the sea began to stir, began being stirred by the strong wind that was blowing. Now, John, in his version, he kind of compresses the story, right? Perhaps because he's the last of the gospel writers, and he assumes everybody would have been familiar with the details by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So he just simply says the sea began to be stirred. Strong wind was blown. Matthew, again, in his version, he gives a little bit more detail. Matthew 24, verse 13, he's a little more descriptive. He says, after they sent the multitudes away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When it was evening, there was, uh, he was there alone. Verse 24 but the boat was already uh, many stadia away from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Mark six forty seven. And when it was evening, the boat was in the midst of the sea. So again, John in our version, John six nineteen. When therefore they had rowed about three or four miles, right, twenty five thirty furlong stadia, depending on the version you have, they're, they're three or four miles out. When the boat was many miles away from the land, in the midst of the sea, it was battered. Right, so again, they have a short little trip. It's a four-mile trip, and they're just going to take it up on the side of the coast here. But now they've been blown off course. The wind, the waves have battered the boat. They're three or four miles off course, right in the middle of Sea of Galilee, the lake there. It's about seven, eight miles uh, across. When uh, Matthew uses the, the word battered, it's interesting. That word battered in the Greek actually means tortured. It's the same word for tortured, tormented, vexed with grievous pains, harassed, distressed. Right? Sometimes the word is even used not only physical illness, but for demonic oppression. So I think the, the idea behind the word is to get a picture, right? A picture. These are not just winds, these are strong winds. 
So you got these strong, severe headwinds, these huge waves that are threatening the lives of the disciples. And, and again, this thing is kind of like a hurricane has already, or has all of a sudden exploded on this, on this uh, lake. It's just instantaneously exploded. And, and again, in Mark's version, it says they were straining the oars. The disciples were straining the oars for the, the wind was against them. That means the oars are about to break. They're being pushed by the wind in the wrong direction. They're still trying to go where Christ has commanded them. They've pointed the boat west, but this violent storm has suddenly come up. It's tormenting them. It's testing them. It has them in their grips. They're in the middle of an instantaneous hurricane. It's threatening their lives. It's dark. It's gloomy. And these experienced sailors are in the midst of this violent storm. You see, off course, fearful of their lives. And guess what? Christ isn't there. Christ is not there. He's still on the mountain praying. Matthew, again, 14, verse 24, says, The boat was already many steady away from the land, battered by the waves, the wind, for the wind was contrary. Verse 25, that chapter says, And it was the fourth watch of the night. Now, the fourth watch of the night is between 3 and 6 a.m., 3 and 6 a.m. So somewhere perhaps between 6 and 10 hours, they have been harassed, battered, tormented by the storm. And all that time, they're fearful of their lives. And they're still a considerable distance away from their, their destination in the pitch black of darkness. Again, in the fourth watch of the night. Again, Mark 6.47, Christ was, a, was alone on the land. Verse uh, 48, Mark 6 says, And seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, it was the fourth watch of the night. Well, let me ask the question, how in the world can that happen? How is it possible that Christ is up on the mountain praying that he can see them? Right? They're three or four miles blown off course in the middle of the sea, Again, it's somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning, pitch, bar, uh, pitch black of darkness and a violent hurricane storm. How can he see them? And all of you should immediately say, the answer is he can see them because he is God. Isn't that encouraging? He's gone. He sees them. He sees us. He sees everything. That's the lesson, one of the lessons, right? First lesson the guys are going to learn, Jesus Christ is all-powerful. He's the all-powerful one. Absolute authority over everything. And he's the knowing God. He's the all-knowing God, the all-seeing God. He sees everything. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He's always present, omnipresent. Again, Psalm 139, I won't read the whole thing, but where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed a shield, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn and dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be as night, even darkness is not dark to you, and night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. That is a warning and an encouragement. God sees. You're not going to hide from him. God's with you. He never flees from your presence. He's always there, a present help in time of trouble. You can't get away from him. Again, that's encouragement. Every one of us are under his careful watch, his careful care, None of us can ever escape him. None of us can ever run away from him to a place where we might hide. Again, we're always under his care, his watch, always very much literally in his hand. Now, from the perspective of the boat, the guys in the boat, right, they're terrified. They're in the middle of the storm. Their life is being threatened. They're absolutely terrified. From Christ's perspective, they're absolutely safe because, safe because he knew exactly where they were, and he cares for them. He's the one who sent them into the middle of the storm. He cares for them. He cares for us. 
right? He was the one who placed them right in the middle of the storm. He was the one who told them to cross the sea, go to the other side. And because of their love for him and their loyalty towards him, they kept uh, obeying him. They would not turn back. And he, likewise, never lost sight of them. He never lost sight of them. He never took his loving hand of care off of them. He is the one who is there to help them out. He hasn't abandoned them. He's not forsaken them. He's not forgotten them. Nor, likewise, has he forgotten you, abandoned you, forsaken you in your time of need. He's the God who's always present. The writer of the book of Hebrews has in Hebrews 12, 11, uh, that all discipline, I think you could put trials, difficulties, trainings, all, diff- all, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, yet to those who've been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Again, if we were to look back on our lives on an individual level, I would guarantee you it would be the difficult, difficult times in your life that have perhaps helped you to grow most in your God-likeness, in your Christ-likeness, in your love for God and love for Christ. It was the difficult times, not the good times. Right? Because trials and affliction bring more growth than happiness. Because trials and affliction always force us to stop trusting ourselves and to start trusting God. Right? Trials and afflictions always force us to stop trusting ourselves and start trusting God. So again, this trial that the disciples are going through is going to help them grow in their understanding of the person of Jesus Christ in a way that they never would have if they hadn't gone through it. Right? They've got to go through the the trial to learn the lesson. And again, not to over-spiritualize, because I'm against that kind of thing, but the reality is that through difficulties and storms and trials of life, we grow, right? Don't we? We grow in our understanding of who God is, who Christ is. And, and we understand more his power, his presence in the midst of difficulties. And again, we, we learn to grow in those trials, to put our trust in God in the midst of those trials, right? That he, again, sovereignly puts us through. Now again, Christ hadn't forgotten his disciples, hadn't abandoned them, Right? He's not failed to care for them, failed to know where they're at. Rather, he's going to come to them. He's going to come to them. It's fourth watch of the night. He came walking to them on the sea. Our text, verse 19. When therefore they had rowed about three or four miles, behold, they see Jesus walking on the sea. Right? They beheld Jesus walking on the sea, drawing near to the boat. <clears throat> now again, from a human perspective, I don't have to spend a lot of time on this. It's completely impossible. Men can't walk on water. I'll back that up. Mere men can't walk on water. But Jesus Christ is no mere man, right? That's the entire point of the book of John. These things, John says, have been written to you that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name, John 20, verse 31. Now, this is the fifth miracle that John records concerning Jesus and his deity, uh, revealing his power over the law of nature. Stop and think about it. It's no great task for the one who created the entire world and everything that is in it, including all of the waters and all of the seas, is no great task for the one who created everything by uh, speaking. Uh, even the law of gravity, again, by just the power of his words, no great, great difficulty for him to suspend the laws that he's made. Right? Just in a moment, he can do that. Now, of course, the skeptics come along, just like they did in the last story. And they deny the miracle. They deny the reality that Jesus is walking on the water. They say, well, you know, Jesus was actually walking along the shore, right? And the terrified disciples mistake that he was walking, mistakenly thought he was walking on the water. But again, that can't be true because the text says he was in the, they were in the middle of the lake, right? They're in the middle of the lake. It's early in the morning. There's darkness. 
how would it have been possible for Jesus, or how would it have been possible for the disciples to see through that stormy night, <clears throat> the swirling wind, the spray, the raging waves, uh, and, and um, onto the shore and see Christ, right? That, that suggestion is utterly ridiculous. But it is an attempt by the unbelieving mind to reject the truth because the unbeliever does not want to subject themselves to the person of God. That's why the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. If I just say to myself, there is no God, right? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. If I just keep telling myself that, or I'm going to close my eyes, just like Dorothy going back to Kansas, right? Crack my feet. And I'm just going to think about going back to Kansas. If I just keep saying, there's no God, there's no God, there's no God. Guess what? One day I'll wake up and there's no God. No, that's a lie. There is a God and you're accountable to him, just like I am. And he sent Christ into the world to be the rescuer, the redeemer. Should bow your knee in time before you face him in eternity as judge. That's the truth. Just because you want to hope something's not true is not true. No, there's no lies here. They, they, he, they saw Jesus walking on the water because the text says they saw Jesus walking on the water. And again, for Jesus the Creator, that's not a very big deal for him to suspend the laws of gravity. And it, again, it gives to the disciples and to us another dramatic testimony to the proof of who he is that he is indeed the controller. He is indeed the creator. He is indeed the one who is in control ever over every aspect of this physical universe that you and I are bound to. So again, you got these 12 guys in this little small boat. They've been battling this vicious storm for some six to 10 hours. They're at the point of exhaustion, physical exhaustion, emotional despair. All hope is gone. Terror from all sides from the threatening sea and the waves. And in their place in this peril... In their time of need, Christ comes to them. He comes to them walking on the sea. Verse 19, when therefore they had rowed about three or four miles, they beheld Jesus walking on the sea, drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. Or more literally, they were terrified. Now someone has rightly said, if you never have a storm, then you never know the power of Christ on your behalf in your life. And that's true. So Christ permitted the disciples to be tossed around by the perilous conditions of the sea for a short period of time, and yet at the appropriate time in his sovereignty and his goodness and his tender mercy, his tremendous love, he came to them in a time where they could more fix their attention upon him and more powerfully fix their attention more fully upon him. There are no video games out there in the middle of the sea when you're about to die, nothing to distract your attention. We are in peril, and the one who can save us is walking towards us. They can fix their gaze upon him more powerfully. Now, this is no vision, because again, if you look at the text, it says they beheld him, they saw him, they looked upon him, they, they caught sight of him. And again, they beheld Jesus walking on the sea, drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. In Matthew's version, Matthew fourteen twenty six, the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were frightened, they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. Now look, we understand men don't walk on water. Men can't walk on water. But the one who walked on water or the one who created water can make water bear his weight. The one who walked on water or the one who created water can prevent the wind and the waves from disturbing even him. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost, and they cried out with fear. Again, they, they are absolutely right in what they see initially, that men can't walk on water. Christ can because he is the creator. But they're absolutely wrong in thinking that he's a ghost. The word there is phantasm, or phantasma. It means just appearance, an apparition, a specter. What's happening to these guys? Well, they're, 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 their fleshly, superstitious minds are getting the best of them. It's late. They've undergone a lot of trauma uh, around them, physical, emotional distress. They're in fear of their life, and all of a sudden they see a man 
walking towards them on the water, it would not be too unnatural of a response to scream out in terror because that's impossible, except for the one who's not impossible for him, right? Now, probably part of what's feeding into this, it's a ghost kind of idea. Popular culture at the time uh, believed there, uh, falsely, of course, that spirits came in the night to bring doom and disaster to men. Therefore, these, again, these guys, again, they're physically exhausted, they're frantic, they're in an emotional state, and all of a sudden they see something that they realize is not impossible, a man walking on water, and they're thrown into a panic and terror in, the, in a panic state, and they scream. Mark's version says this, when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him, and they were frightened. Again, they all saw him. Again, it's not a hallucination. It's, a, it's something that everybody experienced. Everybody in the boat saw Christ. But no one had a way to process what they had seen, this guy walking on water. So again, there's no natural explanation for what they're seeing. Uh, again, adding to their fear, they don't initially recognize that it's Jesus approaching the boat. That's why in verse 20 it says this, He said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Matthew's version says, Take courage, don't be fearful. Now again, isn't it amazing how much the disciples are like us or we're like them? If I ask for a raise of hands, a show of hands, and I said, do we believe that Jesus Christ is all-powerful? All hands go up. Do we believe that Jesus Christ has loved us from eternity into time? I'm assuming it's the same thing. All hands will go up. The one who's promised <clears throat> to never leave us or forsake us. The one who's promised to never let anything come between us and his eternal love for us. Yet, just like these guys, they're in a literal storm, but for us, when a metaphorical storm of life comes up, and we see how much we're not in control, how hopeless and helpless we are, do we not all become fearful? of what we can't control and don't understand. And if I was asked to show up for a show of hands, if you're honest with the other ones you put your hands up with, you'd all put your hands up the same thing because they're all the same way. We're just like these guys. They're just like us. That's why this story is here, to give us encouragement, not in our own frailty, but to encourage us in the person of Jesus Christ, to have our attention gazed upon him. So the one who has loved us from eternity, the one who loves us in a time, the one who has our eternal future in control, the one who knows everything about us, the one who knows where we're at, the one who knows all the trials that we're going through, has us in his care. A lot of times, again, we, we think certain issues, unpleasant experiences in our life are, are a result of bad luck or some kind of sinister power <clears throat> against us. That doesn't exist. If we could get a proper perspective, if we could look up and see Christ coming towards us in our time of difficulty and recognize that it's him, we'd see that whatever those difficulties in our life are, are manifestations of Christ's loving care. There are opportunities for us to trust him more, to grow in our grace and our grace and our understanding of him. It's opportunities to grow in our faith and, and to acknowledge in a real practical, experiential way the reality of who he is. It's an opportunity for us to grow in an understanding of just how much he does care for us, how much he does lead us in the midst of these difficulties. They beheld Jesus walking on the sea, drawing near to the boat. They were frightened. Jesus said, it is I do not be afraid. Now, at this point, I won't go into it, but at this point, it's where Matthew adds, Peter said to him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to the water, out to the water. And Jesus said, come. Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came to Jesus. 
Seeing the wind, he became afraid, beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately uh, Jesus stretched out his hand and took him and said to him, Oh, you little faith, why did you doubt? And then the, the, the pastor feels the compelling urge, and, urge uh, to preach a sermon against Peter for what a bonehead he is. And he just keeps manifesting that all the time. Why didn't he trust you? He took his eyes off Jesus and he started to sink. Okay, honest. How many of you are going to step out of a boat in the middle of a hurricane when you think you're going to die in the boat? And you're going to say, Lord, allow me to come walk on the water with you what I expected. None of us. So let's don't be so hard on Peter. He's a real person, a little more, probably a little more like us than we'd, fail, we, we'd desire to admit. And again, that's another reason why he's in there, right? Because the Bible speaks of real people and real situations, real circumstances, right? Let me tell you what you should go, get away from that from Peter, right? It's a tremendous demonstration of his love for Christ. Now, I know Peter has a difficulty every once in a while. He, it's a tremendous love, statement of, of Peter's love for Christ. It's weak, right? But again, nobody's venturing out of the boat unless they know with some kind of sense of certainty that that's not just a man coming to me, that's my Savior. It's, a, it's an expression of love, it's an expression of a confidence in his deity. The story of the Bible is not about you, it's not about me, it's not about Peter, it's not about the other disciples. The story of the Bible is about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And every opportunity we have to point our attention to Christ, we need to do that because we need to have our attention pointed to Christ. All of us. Verse 21, they saw him coming, right? He says, don't be afraid. Verse 21. They were willing, therefore, to receive him into the boat. Now, again, I don't think the 12 wanted to get in the boat when Christ told them to get in the boat. They didn't want to do that. And, and, and again, they must have been discouraged when he didn't meet them before they sailed off on the voyage in the lake. But under the command of Christ, they go. They, they went. And again, in the midst of the storm, no doubt they're longing for his presence, and then he shows up in a way they never imagined. And then he tells them, don't be afraid, fear not, take courage. Then they gladly receive him into the boat, because as soon as they recognize who he is, their fear is gone. Maybe that's why the Bible tells us to be anxious for no thing. But to take everything to God in prayer, right? They see, they recognize, they, they bring him into the boat, their fears are gone. Terror is abated. Right? They were fear, they were worried just a moment ago about the figure that they saw walking towards them on the sea. Now they gladly receive him into the boat. Right? They, they want him there. Matthew 12, 14.32, Mark 6.51 says, When Jesus got into the boat, the wind stopped immediately. Flat. Matthew 14.33 says, At that moment, those who are in the boat worshipped him. Those who are in the boat worshipped him, saying, You certainly are God's son. When they saw their dear Lord Jesus Christ, when they saw him, when they understood again who he is, that he's God, the absolute controller of the universe. The only appropriate response before him is to fall, bow, and worship. To worship him. The only appropriate response before the Lord Jesus Christ is to fall down in worship of him. That's true discipleship. That's what a true follower of Christ does. To recognize that Jesus is God's son in control of everything in control of nature, in control of creation, the only appropriate response is to bow before him and worship him, which is immensely different from the false followers at the end of the chapter that will reject him. That's the point of the story. They were willing, therefore, to receive him, and they worshipped him. 
True followers of Christ worship. False followers of Christ only want what they want. And when they don't get what they want, they leave. The text, verse 21, goes on and says, and immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. Okay, what do you think that means? I'm not very smart. I think it means immediately the boat was at the land in which they were going. They're three miles, four miles off course in the middle of the thing. The guy who creates the sea, the wild guy who creates the the natural law, can he immediately annihilate distance? Can he abolish time? Is there anything too difficult for the God who's the God over all law, space, matter, and time? Three miles offshore, instantaneously, they're at their destination. Immediately, the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, again, the story is primarily not about Jesus walking on water. The story is about the distinguishing characteristics of true and false disciples, true and false believers. False followers of Christ, false disciples of Christ follow him for what they can get from him. And when things get difficult, they flee. They will not stay. But a true follower of Christ follows him always because they love him, because they have been changed by him, transformed from the inside out. They bow before him. They worship him. They acknowledge that he is indeed the son of the living God. Again, that's why John writes, These things have been written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John twenty thirty one. Remember at the beginning of the book, however, John 1, verse 14, John says, The Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Right, so John writes this text. He wants us to again understand the difference, distinguishing difference between true and false disciples or followers of Christ. But he wants us to see this picture of Christ, this miraculous event, because he wants us to see the glory of Christ. Right, that we would come again to trust him in all aspects and all experiences of our life. Well, we just got started just part way through, right? But we're done. Time's up. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for that great truth. What a wonderful picture of Christ and his all-powerfulness. I'll just pray very simply, Lord. Help us to see his glory greater and greater. We love you. We're so thankful for your message to us through your word. May we apply it into our lives in Christ's name. Amen.